So Guy Kawasaki is a Hawaiian uh, marketing expert who's worked for numerous companies and really has had this remarkably successful career helping take products and make them into household names. Well, in his online biography, he talks about this turning point that happened to him when a friend of his called and said that he could get him a job at a little company called Apple. Well, of course, he jumped at the chance not having any idea that he was working on a computer that would revolutionize personal computing known as the famous Macintosh. But listen to the way in which he describes the process of his beginning to work for Apple. He says, when I saw what a Macintosh could do, the clouds parted and the angels started singing. For four years, I evangelized Macintosh to developers. Did you hear that? Guy evangelized the Macintosh. And this is actually not even a play on words. When Kawasaki started working uh, at Apple, his title literally was software evangelist. Uh, and eventually, even after that change, he, uh, when he got some significant promotion, he became the chief evangelist. He says this, he says, after my time at Apple, I've been many things, author, speaker, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, advisor, and father, but I've never used the title chief evangelist more than I have today. This is because the title only works if your product can change the world. Hey, so let's take a, a little nonverbal Rorschach test. You know, a Rorschach test is what psychologists use uh, to show patients ink blots and see what they see when they look at them. So what comes to your mind when you hear the word evangelism? Uh, my guess is, is a fair amount of you have an anxiety that kind of comes over you when you hear that word. I mean, if you grew up in even a vaguely religious setting like the South, my guess is your associations may not necessarily be all that positive. Um, perhaps you are constantly reminded that the highest expression of Christian discipleship is to share your faith with the lost. Um, but I wonder how much you succeeded. You know, I've spoken to many students who um, uh, were actually incredibly successful uh, at doing personal, confrontational, one-on-one -on -one evangelism. Uh, but that was when they were in college. But afterwards, when they got married and they had children and life became hectic and you feel haggard, you just don't have the same sense of urgency that you had when you were younger. And if you actually get those people in the right context, they'll admit that they, they feel a little guilty about it. Now, others of you might not have that kind of background at all. Um, some of you might be what I would call victims of evangelism. Um, that is, you were in some public place, you were minding your own business, maybe you're in your home, and someone invaded your space uh, with not that much graciousness at all and laid out a handful of facts and they ask you to decide on the meaning of those facts uh, right there on the spot. You know, truthfully, if you really admitted it, you're a little uncomfortable uh, that anyone would try to talk you into their way of looking at life at all. I mean, what business is it of theirs? Um, and even for those people for whom that tactic worked, they'll almost always report that the follow-up was even more important than the initial confrontation. So the question is, what are we supposed to make of this topic of evangelism? Well, in the first half of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul takes up this subject about how his purpose in life has become to tell God's secret about how he is reuniting all things under Christ by forming the church into his body. In short, it's a message that's all about evangelism, or at least how Paul is processing how to get this message out about what being in Christ really looks like. And so I hope today is that we, we can demystify this topic. 
Uh, yeah, I remember one of the most difficult challenges in my life was, uh, was when my wife saddled me uh, with having to wait before we told my family that we were expecting my oldest child, Anna Grace, back in the late 90s. She wanted to do a special sort of Christmas surprise, and so we had to hold off. And I'm telling you, 20 years later, I can still remember how torturous that repression was. And the reason why is because there's an inherent quality to good news that it has to get out. It's something that has to be told. And if it's not, it's likely not even really good news for you. So look, whether you find yourself on the inside of Christianity and feeling kind of a sense of guilt about evangelism, or maybe you cringe at the thought of proselytizing anybody, we both need to hear Paul because Paul's not motivated by guilt. Nobody in the Bible is motivated to talk to people about Jesus by guilt. So why should you? And second, though, is it possible that if you stand on the outside, you might be quite justified if, justified if you were attacked by someone who had intentions to save you. Your irritation might be quite permissible. But what if, regardless of the messenger, you might have missed something that really could have changed your life? You know, Kawasaki says that you can never be an effective evangelist for a product unless that product can change the world. Well, Paul thinks his could and that it would. So what is it? Well, there's four concepts that you really need to grasp and appropriate into your life if you're going to be a chief evangelist like the Apostle Paul was. You need to have a mission motivation, a humble confidence, corporate thinking, and finally a captivated imagination. Let's deal with that first one first, that they need to have a mission motivation. Look, we've talked a whole bunch this spring about God's secret. Uh, Paul actually uses the word mystery three times. And as he's talking about this mystery, that secret that's getting unpacked, there's this truth that he says that God is doing something in the world. But now that Jesus has come, the secret's out. Paul's mission in life is now to tell people that secret. And he sums it up there in verse 6. Take a look at it. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Man, there it is, plain and simple. But did you notice that for the first time in Paul's letter, he kind of gets personal about the story. He begins the chapter, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He goes on to tell a story about how he became a steward of this mystery. In verse 2, he kind of explains how it became known to him. Verse 3, he assures us that he can be trusted about it. And then in verse 7, he says, now it's become my mission in life. And so right out of the gate, you get the first feature of evangelism, and that is that it has the power to do something with one's story. Look, years ago, it was J.R.R. Tolkien who first introduced me to this idea. And I'm not sure there's much that's transformed me more at the way that I look at things in this idea, because Paul begins to weave the Bible's truth into a story about his life. In other words, it's become personal to him. And so my question for you is, have you noticed the power of stories to move you? Uh, when you get around friends, my guess is that you spend more than a little time telling stories about your relationship. Or maybe when you're getting to know someone, you're telling the stories that marked your life. Well, let me tell you what happened after we got married. Or, man, when I was in high school, something happened that changed my life. Or, man, you know, after that accident happened, everything turned around for me. But if you think about those parties and those family gatherings... Isn't that the stuff you love to hear? Isn't that the stuff that you love to talk about? <laughs> you know, I actually have a little game that I like to play on many of you. 
when you're kind of drifting uh, in and out of interest when it comes to my sermons. It's a little bit unnerving because I can't see whether you're drifting right now. Um, But I can actually uh, start into that by saying something like this. Let me tell you a story. And immediately all your heads pop up and you start listening. Now, my question is, why does that happen? Well, Tolkien suggests that the reason why these stories have this ability to move us the way in which they do is because life is a story. The need to hear and to tell and to live life as a story is embedded in the spiritual DNA of every human being. I was speaking to a friend a number of months ago who was going through a a real interesting time of introspection about their own emotional life. And they were lamenting the fact that oftentimes when they would be talking to people about the difficult things they were going through, they didn't feel any kind of well of emotion coming up inside them. But if you stick them inside a movie theater with the right themes and the right dialogue and moving music, you can just lose it. So, So how do you account for that? Why do movies move us the way in which they do? Why do well-written books capture us the way in which they do to where you you just can't seem to put it down? Well, the answer, Tolkien says, is because it's a story. It it moves us to sense that we're caught up in something that's grand and noble or adventurous or maybe even tragic or heroic, even if it's just in our own imaginations. But Tolkien's challenge to his best friend, C.S. Lewis, was simply this, and it led to Lewis's conversion. What if there was a story that made it outside of our imaginations and into the real world? What if your life has a noble and grand and adventurous thing to it? Because this is what's moved Paul to be an evangelist for the gospel, because he's caught up in a vision. He's not just on a mission. He's living an adventure that has God as its main character, and he's a vital part of the story. So the question we begin this conversation about evangelism with is, What if your life is more than just a series of hit and misses? What if your life counts if it's leading somewhere? Because that's the mission that we have to share with others. So the first point is that we have a mission motivation. The second point that Paul mentions is that we also have to have a humble confidence. And honestly, this is something really weird from our text that most people miss the first time they see it. Because in verse 8, Paul kind of butchers good language Uh, By saying that he is the least of the least, technically that can't happen. How can you be the least of the least? (laughs) But Paul is actually inventing a word to show how serious he is. Paul is saying he thinks he is the worst Christian there is. Hmm. Now hold that thought for a second. But then when you get to verse 12, he starts talking about Christians in a very different way. He talks about them in verse 12 having boldness and confidence. He's even referring to the courage that he has in taking on this new mission in life. But do you notice how counterintuitive that is? How, on the one hand, can you see yourself as the worst sinner alive and preach to others about their confidence and boldness that they're supposed to have in Christ? But look, if you'll dive into that little contrast here, you're going to get to the heart of the Christian message. Because honestly, those who don't get this and don't follow Jesus, this is very hard for them to understand. Uh, You know, when someone from outside of Christianity hears a Christian say, I am the least of the least, they're like, ha, that's the pathology of Christianity. You people are teaching folks to have a poor self-image. That's why Christianity is so depressing. That's why I don't like it. But then when a Christian suddenly starts to talk about the love and acceptance and assurance that he has in Jesus and about how he belongs to Jesus and is utterly confident about it, 
they suddenly think that's pathological too. Why? Because now you're cocky. <laughs> that's what I don't like about you Christians. You're, you're arrogant enough to think that you and God, it's all about you and Him. And so the question is, how would you respond to this seeming contradiction in Paul's own vision of himself? Well, I think that the confusion that non-Christians have about all this, it shows how difficult it is to wrap your minds around this unique self-image that only the Christian gospel brings. And mind you, I'm not trying to be too hard on those outside the faith, because let's be honest, Christians struggle. We struggle with both false humility and false pride, don't we? You know, we're falsely humble. We don't, we don't want to come right out and say how proud we are of our recent you know, exhibition of, of personal holiness. <laughs> Because we want everybody to think that we're humble. But man, how desperately we can't stand it when people don't notice us. So the question is, how did Paul hold this together? Uh, well, did you notice that, that, that there in verse 6? He says, Christians have become, quote, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's that phrase again, in Christ. Paul says that he can hold these conflicting attributes together because he is a man in Christ. What does that mean? It means simply this. It means that Jesus became humble so that you can become confident. His humility keeps you from being afraid to admit that you're a failure. But his success over death keeps you confident and keeps you from being crushed by my failures to measure up to God's standard. Look, I really have an inclination that this is one of the reasons why we are so bad at evangelism. Because people who struggle with the truth claims of Jesus are often running away from us right now because, honestly, we use a lot of silly Christian lingo. Uh, We do a lot of insecure ramblings about how much better my life was since I came to Christ. And it's as if those folks can see this thing coming a mile away. But here's my point. Paul does not approach evangelism with any of those kinds of pretensions. Rather, what he's saying is is that the gospel has started to make me a genuine person. So become someone who isn't crippled by self-doubt on the one hand or become annoying by self-congratulation on the other. And suddenly you'll have two things that cannot exist outside of knowing Jesus, humility and confidence. But here's the thing. When we become that by the grace of God and the gospel, then just maybe people will see authenticity for the first time and they might want to hear what we have to say. So a humble confidence is what's possessed, Paul. We see a mission motivation, a humble confidence. Thirdly, though, notice that there's a sense of corporate thinking. Man, this one is a huge piece of the evangelism puzzle that we're considering. And honestly, it might be the most important because Paul says in verse 10 that God has chosen to unveil this cosmic plan. Look at what it says. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, look, that word translated church there is the Greek word ekklesia. And if you translate it in the most literal way possible, it simply means the called out ones. You've heard me say that the vast majority of times that Paul uses this word in the New Testament, he's not referring to what we often refer to when we say that word. You know, he doesn't mean the church building, of course, when he says church. Uh, But second, he also doesn't mean some kind of vague, amorphous abstraction that like refers to all the Christians everywhere. 
I'm sure I believe in the church, as in, you know, all the Christians of the world, right? No, when Paul's using this word, he's being very specific. He's talking about an actual church, an, an organization that has appointed leaders that we call elders and, and servant leaders called deacons uh, with membership vows and worship meeting times and nursery duty and the sacraments. And he's talking about all of the functions that we engage in every single week here at Christ Prez. So Paul says he has mission motivation, a humble confidence. The third thing he talks about is a corporate thinking. Now, look, this is a huge piece of this evangelism puzzle that we're trying to put together and possibly the most important because in verses, uh, verses, uh, verse 10, Paul says that God has chosen to unveil this cosmic plan, quote, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now, that word that we have translated church there is a Greek word, uh, ekklesia. And if you translate it, it literally means the called out ones. Uh, you've heard me say uh, that the vast majority of times that Paul uses that word in the New Testament, he's not referring to what we oftentimes mean when we say that word. Uh, first of all, he doesn't mean a church building, as important as buildings are. But second, he also doesn't mean some kind of vague, uh, amorphous abstraction that it refers to, you know, all the Christians everywhere. Uh, sure, I believe in the church, you know, all the Christians in the world. Now, when Paul uses this word, he's being really specific because he's talking about an actual church, an organization with appointed leaders that he calls elders, uh, servant leaders that he calls deacons and membership vows and worship meeting times and nursery duty and the sacraments. In other words, he's talking about all of the functions that we engage in every week here at Christ Press. But listen, don't miss this. It's in that place where God is going to unfold the manifold wisdom of God to everyone on the earth and everyone in the heavenly places. Uh, when, when my oldest, Anna Grace, was tiny, we were gathered around the dinner table one night, and she looked at me and she was like, Daddy, where is God? And I answered, and I was like, well, sweetheart, God is all around us. And I'll never forget that she immediately kind of furrowed her brow, and she did this, looking for God. And I almost feel like that whenever we start to talk about the church, uh, that the same thing happens to us. It's like we furrow our brow and we look to the people next to us and we look to the weirdos in our family and we look to all the things going on that we see on television and we think to ourselves, what? <laughs> this place? This people? You know, surely God made some kind of mistake here. Uh, but the truth is, it's all true. We are, as the body of Christ, the location of the institution that God is going to use to topple the world. And you know it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen when you see something very particular. The first thing that's going to happen is God is going to use this church as the way to bring healing to the world. And wow, what kind of an amazing illustration do we have right now with the spread of this plague throughout our country and our world to think about what it looks like to be people that are committed to bringing healing to people. Yes, absolutely, the foremost of our proclamation is how God heals sin-sick souls. But having done just that, he then turns and says, but don't forget the needs of people's body, which is the reason why we're having this video in the first place, is so that we can protect the most vulnerable among us.
That's how you'll know that this church is this place that God is using to topple the world. But look at verse 6, because there's another way in which you'll know, and that is when outsiders begin to be included on the inside. Look, the very purpose of this church's existence is to include those who come within our midst who feel like they're on the outside. We are the called out ones, so we too have to do our own calling out to those whom the world has passed by. Look, Jesus gets very upset at us when we do not unconditionally accept those into our membership of our churches who profess to follow the Jesus of the Bible. Think about why is it that our churches are not more racially diverse than they are in the South? Is that a question we can even ask? I would submit to you that one of the reasons why is because we don't know what it means to be the church yet. But notice this emphasis on the church being at the essence of evangelism, it meets a huge need uh, for making Christians. And it simply is this, you can't do it all. Look, think about it. If you are the primary element in the evangelism of someone's life, what are you going to produce in them? You're going to produce you. God forbid. But if our view of evangelism is that we want to incorporate them into a body of people, well, then the pastor can teach them. The, the single mom can walk them through what it means to be patient. The former drug addict can show them the power of the gospel to help overcome struggles. Uh, children can show them joy, etc. In other words, you cannot possibly be the person that this person needs you to be to them in order to see them mature if you're all by yourself. It's only among the corporate body of worship that we do. You know, when I was in uh, campus ministry for all those years, I used to hear a lot of students talk about how much they wanted for someone to disciple them. That's a perfectly natural and good desire of Christians to, to have a mentor or a guide who will walk with them through their spiritual journey. But I can also remember that for as many of those students, uh, that good desire often came at a cost. And that cost was that they failed to see that the whole body of Christ is our discipler. And so you often miss the fact that, you know, that annoying person who sits across the pew from you, who absolutely drives you crazy, um, you think to themselves, that's not just a problem for you because they're not a problem. They are part of the body that is discipling you just as much as the super Christian that you're supposedly looking for really is. So Paul says this evangelism has got to be in a body called the church. So you see a mission motivation a humble confidence, corporate thinking, and then fourthly and finally, we see a captivated imagination. You know, in verse 8, we have one of the most tender phrases that we've seen in Paul's view about himself because he talks about his commission to preach to the Gentiles, quote, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That little word you have translated there, unsearchable, literally means not to be traced out. Paul is saying that there is something here that is even too vast for you even to explore. Uh, John Stott actually gives this quote when he says, Translators and commentators compete with one another in their attempt to find a dynamic equivalent in English. The riches of Christ, they say, are unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, and incalculable. What is certain about the wealth of Christ that he has and gives is that we shall never come to the end of it. 
In other words, Paul is convinced that coming to Jesus was the opposite of impoverishment. He wasn't limiting himself. On the contrary, he was approaching something that was immeasurably enriching, utterly captivating his imagination, and utterly something that was worth giving his life to. You know, a little over a year ago, some of our men in our church went to go serve uh, with a prison ministry called Kairos uh, in Parchment Prison. Parchment Prison, one of the darkest incarceration holes in the entire country. I think that's fair to say. Um, and you know, th- th- this was a dramatic visit for the man I was talking to about it because they found themselves at one point during the visit in a large stairwell adjacent to one of the cell blocks uh, where men were trying to uh, speak over this just cacophony of profanity and argument and shouting all the way across. But suddenly, one of our men among our group started to sing. Nobody really noticed him at first, the sound of his song. But as it went on and he persisted, and the rest of our men joined in, pretty soon the prisoners took up the song as well, just as loud and clear as it could be. You know, the man telling me the story had tears in his eyes because he felt like he saw a miracle of this juxtaposition of the, of the passionate song in the midst of those heartbreaking surroundings. Man, doesn't that inspire us? And I wonder how many of us long for those kind of inspirational moments where we can see and hear and touch the work of, of the gospel in someone's life. I think we all long for that, whether we're religious or not. So the question though becomes, what is it about Christianity that makes it so special? <laughs> well, sit around for our study, because that's what we've been looking at this entire time. One of my favorite stories, though, is about J.R.R. Tolkien, who once wrote himself into one of his short stories. The short story was called Leaf by Niggle. <laughs> the story is about a, a painter who actually was very good, but also very perfectionistic as well. And he started working on the picture of a leaf. But he didn't just want to paint the leaf. He wanted to paint also the rest of the tree. He wanted to include the landscape behind the tree and then the the mountain vista behind the landscape. And he wanted to paint it all well. But he he knew that he was going to struggle because he knew that his time to pass away and to die was coming very near. Well, towards the end of his life, he's laying there on his deathbed. And as he breathes his last gasp, he says out loud, but it's not even finished. The next scene goes on the other side of the grave as he takes a look uh, over a beautiful mountain vista, having taken a train ride to it. But across the plain, there in reality, was his tree. And the, the text says this. He said, before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind uh, that Niggle had so often felt or at least guessed about and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly lifted his arms and opened them wide and said, It is a gift. Look, what Tolkien understood was that at the heart of the Christian message was the culmination of every single human endeavor. Whether you're an artist who's looking for the perfect painting, whether you're a songwriter looking for the perfect song, Whether you're a doctor looking at a pandemic, wondering how are we ever going to overcome this? We all feel in our vocations that there's this thing we're working for that we'll never actually find. Even my friend who heard the singing at Parchman was assaulted just a few weeks ago by the news that the prison had descended into chaos and death. But here's the story of Christianity that captivates the imagination. Only in Christianity... 
do you have the resolution to all human striving? And the reason why we do is because it's all found in Christ. This is what's captured Paul's imagination. So the question is, perhaps it could capture yours as well. Perhaps we could have our own ideas completely transformed by the grace of the gospel. Because if that's happened, you've been evangelized. (laughs) Not by a technique, but by wonder and by joy. Would that that would be true for all of us, even during the trying times in which we are in. Let's pray together. Father, would you be so gracious as to apply this word to our hearts? What, what What a time for us to look at our ways to spread the gospel Father, as disease spreads throughout our world, give us a passion to spread the good news of Christ, that you resolve these conflicts, that you capture our imagination, that you join us into a body, uh, that you give us a humble confidence to take this mission and to do it well. Would you give us that grace? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.